seated. Uh, in the early 90s, there was a very popular study by a Southern Baptist author named Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. Uh, 90% of it was absolutely phenomenal. A few of it, a little bit of it might be problematic, but really not so much. I don't want to be a nitpicker to, to old Henry. That study blessed my walk with him, but the, with the Lord. But the reality is, I don't think you can find a better scripture than today's text in Isaiah of what it means to experience God, all right? Because what we're going to learn today is he is the God of glory who invites us in. So turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, because what this passage tells us about experiencing God is Christian experience is a reality for each and every one of us. The Christian experience is different among us, and the results of such an experience, we're going to see. The Christian experience is a reality. Every one of us have a little different experience than one another, and we're going to see the results of such an experience. First, Christian experience with God is real. Verse 1, in the year of King Uzziah died, I saw. Seems a little basic, I know. But as a priest, in fact, like all of us, he went to the temple that day, went to church that day, as he had a hundred times before. It was a Sabbath, just like we all come to church. Anyone who goes to the synagogue, anybody else, goes to church, but never expected to see God. He saw. He always maybe had felt God. He might have been inspired by the word of God. But no, he came one day and he saw. The Bible continually tells us that Christianity is not simply about rules and regulations and beliefs. It's about tasting and see that the Lord is good. Seeing God, knowing God. Not about knowing about God. That little word saw means Isaiah moved from knowing about God to knowing God. Isaiah moved from saying his prayers to praying. Isaiah moved from being a nominal believer to being a real believer. And it shocked him. So what does this mean? Just this. You remember the passage where Jesus throws all the money changers and animal sellers out of the temple, overturns the money changers' tables, and he yells at them and says, my house should be a house of prayer because all the noise and cacophony, all the clamor of buying and selling, nobody is praying in the temple. In other words, it's become mechanical, very religious, Nobody is actually meeting God in the temple of God. And they're not seeing God. Reminds me of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. You know the story. Mary and Martha were friends with Jesus. They're sisters. So Jesus came to stay with them, and right away Martha got busy. 
She said, oh my goodness, I got to serve Jesus. Got to cook, got to clean, got to vacuum, got to wash the windows. Jesus is here. I got to clean up. She's running around. That's Martha serving Jesus, all right. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, looking up, listening, beaming. She's listening to him, her face lifted up, her countenance bright. I'm sure Martha runs by and sees her sitting there, and she walks up to Jesus and says, Lord, tell my sister to start serving you, like me. What does he say? She is serving me. Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. Mary has chosen the better part. Martha, you let your religion squeeze you out of knowing God. You're so busy. You're doing so much in my name, but you're not seeing me. You're not actually knowing me. In other words, the first point this morning is the re-saying that reason Jesus Christ died on the cross, the reason he went to all that agony was not so much that you could run or participate in a church program, not so much to go to a meeting, not so much that you could do all the religious activities. You know, people without Jesus do a lot of religious activity. They've been fasting. They've been trying to obey. They've been trying to obey all the rules. They try to help the poor and the hurting people. All good things. They've been doing that for years. But Jesus didn't die for us to do merely that. We can do that without Jesus Christ. The one thing Jesus died for was so you could have access to God so you could see him. So you could come into his presence and not be consumed. Jesus says to Martha, Mary is doing the one thing I really came to have with you. Mary sees me. She knows me. She has access to me. And Christianity is an experience. It's not just an experience, but it's not less than that. You might be very proud of how much you know your doctrine. You might know your Bible very well. You might have quite a record of ministry experience in many, many churches. You might look at others and say, you ought to know more about this by now. Or you may be a very moral person, clean living, spotless record. That's Martha stuff. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do those things, but the point is, do you see Jesus? Do you actually know him? How's your prayer life? Are you connecting with him? Is the tremendous joy that you draw on every day, or at least fairly often, that just leads you into the rest of your day, enables you to face life? See, is your daily Christian behavior the overflow of an already filled cup? Or is it actually a response to the emptiness? Are you doing it to convince yourself, God must like me. Look how busy I am. <laughs> Look at all the things I'm doing for him. All the religious 
Busyness and behavior can be a response to lack of knowing him, actually. It can be a response to an emptiness. Instead of overflowing, bubbling out of a love for the Lord. The reality of Christian experience. So Isaiah one day comes to church and he couldn't believe it. He actually saw God. Every single time you sit down to pray. Every single Sunday you come into church. Ask for the same thing. Lord, help me to see you today. You shouldn't be saying, well, I'm here, Gene. This better be good. Or I'm doing my duty. God better be good to me. I'm trying to, I'm trying to do this, trying to do that. I'm expecting great things. Well, if you're doing that, you're making worship a means to an end. Knock it off, Martha. Be a Mary with me and all of us. Secondly, Christian experience is different among each and every one of us. Here's what I mean by that. Isaiah's call to ministry, his experience, in many, many ways is extremely different from the other prophets of the Old Testament. I mean, look at Jeremiah. Isaiah comes in and gets this amazingly lofty, majestic experience with God. I saw the Lord lifted upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Did you hear that? This is Solomon's temple. It's huge. And just the train of his robe filled the temple. You're only getting to see his backside. This magnificent train. High, lifted up. Isaiah has probably been looking at God as some sort of cosmic buddy. I'll tell you why in a minute. What he needed was to see God so high and to see himself as so low. God has everything and needs nothing. Isaiah is nothing and needs everything that God offers. That's the experience he had. But if you flip to the right to Jeremiah, and God's called upon Jeremiah, it's not even close to being the same. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. Ah, sovereign Lord, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a child. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you, and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and to tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Isn't that amazing how different those two call stories are? Just, here's God, and he's actually very gentle to Jeremiah and says, Hey, young buck, you're thinking too low of yourself. To Isaiah, he's saying, Hey, peon, you're thinking too high of yourself. 
Isaiah's people are all from the right families. He's the right schools. He went to Miami University of Ohio. Cincy. OU. Ohio State. They have all the right connections. The Isaiahs of the world are smarter. They're physically fit. They're the beautiful people. They're well-dressed. And as a result, when they consider ministry, as Isaiah probably had this ministry a while before this came along, because there's five chapters of Isaiah before this. Probably, I'm sure, the people around him are saying, you know, God can use our Isaiah. This is a good thing. He's somebody. So when God shows up, God is as high as he can be. Isaiah gets a nosebleed just looking at him. It's an amazing view. There's no sweetness and light in Isaiah's call, where in Jeremiah's there is. Isaiah got what he needed, and so did Jeremiah. So listen carefully. It doesn't mean that there isn't something that they all have in common. If you look carefully at them, you'll see Isaiah saw God lifted up and made him feel like nothing so God could come and show him his mercy. Isaiah didn't think he needed mercy. So how could he experience it? He had to be humbled to the ground before he could see the mercy of God. Jeremiah is very much the opposite. Jeremiah has been brought into the relationship with God and experienced his mercy before he was really able to see. In some ways, the sinfulness of sin, because you know until you really know God as your friend, do you really see how wicked your sin is? You know, if I were to come to your house and you weren't there, and I saw some bills on your your dining room table, you know, and I paid it. I called you up and said, hey, I paid that bill for you. You wouldn't know what to think unless you knew how much that bill was, right? You know, because if I just paid, you know, a $5 fee for traffic violations or something, you'd say, oh, great, super. On the other hand, if it was a bill for $40,000 of back taxes from the IRS and the tax man is going to come to your door in a few weeks and I paid that, that would be totally different. You don't know whether to say thank you or whether to get on your knees and kiss my feet. Until you know how big the debt is, you have no idea how great the mercy is. They all go together. Your sense of your need and your debt increase as the sense of his grace increases. They're both there, but the order depends on the situation. And it's very, very dangerous of us to take the way that we found God and look and see the order and shape of our experience and then impose our experience on someone else. It's very easy for some of us to be, have been very hurt early on in life with a tremendous sense of our sinfulness and wickedness. And so you come to faith in Jesus. You talk to somebody else who's recently come to Christ and they didn't come to Christ that way. And you start thinking to yourself, I, I don't even know this person is a real Christian. Be careful about that. Be careful. 
Chuck Swindoll, as you know, is the pastor, longtime pastor of Stonebriar Community Church in Frisco, Texas. I don't agree on every point of his theology, but I tell you what, he's the best storyteller you ever heard. He's got these incredible personal stories that each and every Sunday he shares with that congregation. And many people have come to faith in Christ through many of his personal stories pointing to the good news of Jesus Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones was an Isaiah. Grew up in all the best schools. Went to the top medical professions in Great Britain. He really was in a class-conscious place. Made it to the top. He saw a man who was 20 years his elder. His wife, who he dearly loved, died. And the man walked in, sat next down, sat next to Lloyd-Jones and stared at the fireplace for two hours, utterly silent. This man had reached the top. And Lloyd-Jones suddenly realized if you have everything the world can possibly give, and he did, that doesn't mean you can face the realities of life. And he was deeply troubled. He was an Isaiah, and he came to faith in Jesus, and he was very humbled. As a 40-year-old doctor, he went to seminary. And as a result, he never shared a personal illustration of himself in any of his sermons, ever. Some of us need God's mercy to open our mouths. Others of us need God's holiness to finally shut us up. It all depends. If you read through the book of Isaiah, you will find that he never references personal illustrations. He doesn't talk about himself at all. Jeremiah talks about himself all the time and what he's going through. And if you're in Jeremiah's shoes, you would too, I think. So we have to be careful. Each and every one of us experience God in a different way. Let's have grace with one another. Finally, so what are the results of these experiences that we have? Well, it's implied in the text, but we see it. Awe and restoration. When you see here the seraphim, those are angels with six wings. All commentators tell us that the two wings covering the feet is an act of angelic modesty. To cover your feet was a way of saying, I'm not worthy, Lord. The two on their back show they're ready to do the Lord's bidding at a moment's notice. They're coiled to spring to swiftly do whatever the Lord wants. The two over their face meant they were having trouble looking at the brilliance of the holiness of God. The question is, well, how holy must this God be if even the angels can't look upon him? What is the holiness of God? It's all of his moral excellence balled up into one. It's his incredible generosity, but not just that. It's his unbelievable justice, but not just that. It's his bottomless grace. It's not just that. It's his trustworthiness, but it's not just that. And you put them all together into a prism, 
and you turn at a slight angle, you can see a little portion, but when it all comes together, it's bright white. And that's what they saw, and they couldn't bear to look at it. It was so glorious and bright. And yet they were trying to look at it. Why? Because they loved it. They're praising it. They cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is one of the great marks of Christian experience. Awe. We're awestruck at just who God is. Jonathan Edwards says a person who is very excited about God's grace, that's very important. He says a person who is just marrying God for his money, who doesn't love God, is just using God. Just finding a way to make use of God. Could be very excited about God's forgiveness, but a real Christian looks for his holiness, for who God is, not for what he gets out of this walk with God. Not a consumerist. You see, the holiness of God is a horrible threat unless you know you're redeemed and adopted through Jesus Christ. The holiness of God is only attractive if you love God for the beauty of who he is. To look at his perfections, to look at his excellence, to look at his moral beauty and perfection, and to be attracted by that is the mark of the seraphs and the mark of a real experience with God. Finally, if you're really attracted to the holiness of God, it amazes you and you find it deeply enjoyable and deeply comforting, you find your heart going out to it. It's interesting that these angels are so obedient because of the holiness of God. So you won't say, well, you know, I tried it and it didn't work for me. You know, I served God and I didn't get into the school I wanted. You know, I, I walked with God and I didn't get the job I wanted. I, I, I served God and I didn't get the spouse I bargained for. What good is God? Well, that's not, that's, that's using God. You see that, right? You never, you don't, you don't know God at all. Because God is saying, I'm here. I'm holy. He's high and lifted up. Most important, the easiest thing for us to understand is that if you've ever met the real God and you really love God for who he is, you'll be attracted to the holiness and be filled with awe. The Bible says in some astonishing ways that if you gaze at the holiness of God and love it, and if you meditate on it and you love that, you will become more like it. A fascinating character in C.S. Lewis's great divorce. I've shared this before, but it's been 10 years, so you don't remember it anyway. Um, <laughs> is a character named Sarah Smith of Golders Green. Kind of sounds pretty dull, right? Sarah Smith of Golders Green. She was homely, unhappy, you know, uninteresting. If, if poor Sarah grew up in my neighborhood growing up with all us smack-talking boys, we would have called her meh. 
That would have been her nickname. Okay? Every one of us had a nickname. And some of them were like that. You know? Hey, meh. Throw the ball here. Meh. But in the presence of the Lord, it says the beauty of Sarah's soul was so filled with the beauty of holiness that she was unbearingly beautiful. That's what it means to be holy. And it's beautiful because you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ. And you know you've been touched by the grace of God. And you're finally communing with the real God. So what does that mean? You're restored. What's Isaiah's response to all this? Woe is me. I got a potty mouth. You know, he's never said anything about that in the first five chapters, but he's got some type of language problem. We don't know exactly what it is. But the angel comes. Isaiah just confesses, and God takes the initiative and says in verse 7, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. See, when you meet God for who he is in Jesus Christ, your sin is atoned for. And you don't need to put a string on your finger or set a ping on your phone to remind you of his great love for you in Jesus Christ. All you need to do is to see the Lord of hosts high and lifted up on the throne, which means he's in utter control of what's going on. Who loves me. He's put his coal on my lips and has received me. And he's put his arms around me and is on the throne of the universe. And if you know that, you don't shrivel. You're not concerned what the world thinks about you. You don't need a reminder technique to remember that God truly loves you. All you need to see is the Lord high and lifted up. And therefore, we come to the table, his table, reminding us of that great love. Asking him to help us to see him in this way. And to change us like he changed Isaiah. Because this country club Isaiah, okay, probably with his penny loafers and an Izod shirt, Ralph Polo collar turned up like those preppy boys, you know. That Isaiah says, here I am, send me. He never would have said that before. He needed to see God to be sent. You might be a Jeremiah, you might be an Isaiah, but no matter where you are, let us all see God for who he is today the God of all, and let's celebrate that together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this experience, and it's what you want to do in each and every one of our lives. We thank you for your word, which reminds us as we come to the temple, the church, and as we come in and we see you, Lord, we pray we would experience you each and every week, and we will leave this place bold, alive, spiritually awake, joyful, courageous, pure, strong, deep, 
full of your grace and truth and wide open to whatever you would have for us. That's what we ask for, Lord, nothing less. And because that's what you offer us, nothing less. It would be insult, really, for us to seek less. So, Lord, we ask you would help us to seek your holiness. And we would find it. For we ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, empowered by the Holy Spirit, unto the Father, who loves us, gentle and lowly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.